welcome to the sermon podcast for Ashburn Baptist Church, Chicago. We pray the message you are about to hear is a blessing and an encouragement to your life. Hey, isn't it good to be in church today? John, five years, a half a decade, holy smokes. A Liz was in the back, one of the students here. She was saying that I was old. I was like, no, are you kidding me? If I'm old, that makes John really old, right? I just don't think that can be true. It's not true. Hey, can you real quick, can you give, me, can you give everyone a round of applause and give God a round of applause for what he's been doing here in Chicago? Man, it has been an absolute joy to be here with you. Me and John were talking before the service. It is one year to the day that Tommy and I had a conversation in a small restaurant called Girl in the Park right next to Orland Park campus where I said, Tommy, I think God wants me to maybe pastor a church. And I think that God's maybe leading me towards the Chicago campus, and I wanted to get your thoughts. And on that day, on this day, one year ago, Tommy gave me his blessing to come to Chicago and be a part of this campus. And it has been one of my favorite years of my entire life, watching God move and watching God work and watching God use you. Uh, watching God use you has easily been my favorite part. Hey, we're continuing a series today that we're calling Just Saying. We are understanding the power of our words, your words, my words. They hold so much power, so much power that the Bible actually says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. What we say and how we say it literally holds the power of life and death. Maybe you've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never kill me. That is a lie. Because God says that death and life are in the power of your tongue. And something so important must be controlled. And I think that's why James says the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of many great things. And in this series, we're talking about many different types of words. Words that hold great power. And last week, we talked about a very powerful word. A word that can set us free. If you remember it, forgive We called it the F word, forgive, and this week we're continuing with that thought. We're looking at a single word that holds a lot of power. We're calling this one the four-letter word called love. Love, L-O-V-E. But before we talk about love, let's talk about his enemy, criticism. Criticism. See, if we are not careful, a critical tongue will consume us and destroy us. If we're not careful, it will consume us and control us. Recently, I heard a story of an early American farmer who stood by the road in his covered wagon, and and there was an approaching wagon from the opposite side, and as he saw them approach, he yelled out with a loud voice, where are you headed? The man underneath of that covered wagon said, well, we're moving from Gainesville to Jonestown. How much further? The farmer responded, well, about 30 miles. Why are you moving? The man behind the wagon said, well, the people there are mean, nasty, hateful, deceitful, ungrateful, really just an ungodly bunch. So we're moving. So what can we expect in Jonestown? The farmer replied with a smile on his face, well, the very same kind, more of the same. And undoubtedly, the farmer was correct. For far more often than we care to admit it, our outlook determines our outcome. Our outlook determines our outcome. That is to say that how we perceive things to be is often how they actually are. And when it comes to love, I believe that many times we can't see past our own preferences. 
When it comes to maybe the single greatest commandment, as Jesus said, to love God and to love others, we can't see past what we like, how we like it, what we don't like, and why we don't like it. And so we find ourselves, instead of loving our neighbor like ourselves, we criticize our neighbor because we love ourselves too much. In Numbers 12, we find the entire nation of Israel wandering in what the Bible calls a wilderness, in large part because they couldn't control their critical tongue. They couldn't control the words that came out of their mouth. I want you to see this example in Numbers 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to be there pretty much all day today. Numbers 12 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he married. For he married a Cushite woman. Spoke against. Spoke against. That's a phrase that's translated in the New King James Version with a word that we're very familiar with. Are you ready? Criticize. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses. Today, before we ever talk about loving words, I believe that you and I need to talk about critical words. Now, don't confuse criticism with complaining. You see, complaining focuses on circumstances. Criticism focuses on people. When you criticize, you're focusing on an individual. I want you to look at this definition that we're going to be using all day today. To criticize is this. To dwell upon the perceived thoughts of another with no view of their good. To dwell upon the the perceived faults of another with no view of their good. We're going to break down that definition really fast. You ready? First, let's focus on that word perceived. It's the perceived faults of another person. How we view things to be and listen today, what we perceive reality to be is not always the way that things really are. Just because you see it that way doesn't mean that it's actually that way. Maybe you see somebody struggling. Maybe you see somebody doing something that maybe you wouldn't do, but you don't know their family life. You don't know their difficulties. You don't know their struggles. You don't know their backgrounds. You don't know why they're doing what they're doing. It's perceived faults. Sure, it might not look like what you would do or what you would like, but it's not necessarily a fault. Secondly, let's focus on that phrase, to dwell upon. To dwell upon the perceived faults of another. Now, this is a key issue. It's not wrong to notice when someone else makes a mistake. It's not wrong. In fact, perceptive people notice shortcomings. Maybe you're in here today and you notice when things are a little bit off. Like maybe you were sitting here this morning and you noticed that there was a really long pause between our second song and when John came up to talk. And in your head, you're thinking, what's going on? What's Aaron messing up? What's Joe messing up? Who knows what the problem was, but it was a perceived fault. Now here's where it becomes wrong. It becomes wrong when we dwell upon it. When we constantly think about it. When we let it eat us up. When we get in our car today and we're like, well, it was pretty good, but media was not that great today. Oh, it was pretty good service. I got something out of the message. The worship was nice, but that little pause. And we just think about it and we let it consume us from the inside out. That's when it becomes wrong, when we dwell on it. For instance, you can perceive that I look weird in purple. You can perceive that. You can think that. But it becomes wrong when you dwell on it, when you keep thinking about it. 
Now let's get a little bit more serious. You can perceive that things at Ashburn could be better, but it becomes wrong when you dwell on it. You can perceive that something is maybe happening in the life of your friend or your relative, but it becomes wrong when you dwell on it. When you let it consume your mind and your thoughts, you might ask yourself, well, how in the world am I supposed to help somebody if I don't dwell on it? Well, I believe that's why the definition adds the last part. It says to dwell upon the perceived faults of another person with no thought of their good. With no view of their good. You see, if you and I notice the faults of another person, dwell on those thoughts and never pray for that friend, we are 100% in the wrong. If you notice the sin of another person, then dwell on it and think about it and consume it, but never aim to help them, you're critical. You're not loving, you're critical. In Numbers 12, we just found the story of a, of a brother and a sister named Miriam and Aaron. They're the brother and sister of Moses, and, and they're criticizing their brother. And we learn three truths about criticism from this story. The first thing that we learn about a critical tongue is that it's petty. Man, a critical tongue is petty. Did you see what they were criticizing about? Look at verse 1 again. Miriam and Aaron spoke out, criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman. Whom he had married. And then they repeat it because they're dwelling on it. For he had married a Cushite woman. They're complaining about the woman that he married. This great man who God used to do great things, considered maybe God's greatest servant, who led God's people out of Egypt, who God used to perform miracles, who God used to write the first five books of the Bible. They're criticizing who he chose to marry. Not only are they noticing it as a perceived fault, but now they're dwelling upon it. You know, our criticism is the exact same way. It's petty. A lot of times it's petty. Like, have you ever met somebody in your life that maybe you just didn't like? The way they looked, the way they talked, the way they acted, the way they were faker than their hair, their nails, and their attitude. There we go. Some of that clicked. Some of you are smiling. We know that person, and we can't stand that person. Me too. I mean, there's definitely been somebody like that in my life where I couldn't stand being around them. I can think about a moment, even here at Ashburn, where I could not stand being around them because I didn't like their attitude. I didn't like their ego. I didn't like the way that they treated me. I didn't like any of their ideas. I thought they were a terrible person. And you know what I did? I dwelt on my critical thoughts. When I'd see them, I'd think about how I didn't like them. When I wasn't with them, but I saw their post pop up on Facebook, I'd say, that person's a phony a fraudulent, a fake, and it was literally consuming me from the inside out, and every single thought that I had was petty. It wasn't even that important, and I believe that criticism is the exact same way in our lives. It's petty. This teacher's mean. This food is gross. This sermon is boring. This church is weird. This spouse doesn't understand. This boss has a bad haircut. Critical tongues are petty. And when we dwell on our pe petty critical thoughts, they consume us. But not only are they petty, I want you to notice this also. From this passage, I believe that we learned that a critical tongue is just surface. 
Like what we're complaining about and criticizing for is just the surface level. I want you to see what I mean. Because did you notice in the very next verse after they criticized Moses for his wife what they say? Look at it. Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman we married. He married a Cushite woman. Check it out. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? I mean, hasn't he also spoken through us? Hello. Everybody say hi to the real heart of the issue. Aaron and Miriam were angry that God was using Moses more than them. They were upset that Moses was getting all this attention. They're saying, hey, is Moses the only one that God has spoken through? Hasn't God used all of us also? You know, I believe our criticism is the exact same way. It's just surface to a greater issue. See, I believe that our tongue is a thermometer that measures the spiritual temperature of our heart. The Bible actually says that it's just the outside words that's revealing the inside heart. You know, that same person that I was critical about for a lot of the first few years that I was here, you know, when I think about it, when we first moved here, they were critical towards me. That might not even be the best way to say it. They were mean to me. They weren't kind. They hurt my feelings. Do you know what I did in retaliation? I was critical to them. Well, they don't like me. I don't like them. Oh, they're mean to me. I'll be mean to them. Oh, they don't like me. Well, I think they're fake. I think they're a fraud. And I'm going to dwell on those things. It was just surface. So a few years ago when I got my feelings hurt, My criticism was surface of a greater issue, and so is yours. It's not that your spouse doesn't understand you. It's that she didn't agree with your idea that one time, and it hurts you, and so now you lash out. It's not that you just think that your boss is mean and he hates you. No, it's that one time when you first started working, when he caught you being a little bit lazy or on your phone, and now he's giving you a hard time, and so you guys have a bad relationship. It's not that your friend's different now. It's that they did something way back then when that you just don't like and now you don't get along like you used to. And you might say that it's because they moved on and you might say that it's that they found a new group of friends, but in reality, you have beef that you haven't forgiven. Criticism surface. I want you to notice one more thing. A critical attitude is destructive. It's destructive. Look at verse two. The Lord heard it, heard their criticism, by the way. God hears your criticism too. He hears those words that slip out of your mouth. He hears when you bad talk your friend or your small group leader or your spouse or your coworker, your neighbor. He hears those, those words. And not only does he hear those words, he sees those thoughts. The things that maybe never escape your lips, but those things that are inside of your head that you're constantly thinking about, he sees all of it. He saw Miriam and Aaron. He heard their words. He knew their thoughts. And Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of a meeting. There the three of them come out. If you skip down to verse 9, God's gathered them together. He had some words to say to them, and then this happens. Look at verse 9. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed 
when the cloud was removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. She was diseased. She looked like snow. She was covered in it. I want you to know something today. That critical attitude that maybe you're noticing in your life today from this passage, maybe there's some things that have resonated with you in your own life about how you have a critical attitude, mind, spirit, tongue. I want you to know that it destroys three things. The first thing it destroys is it destroys your relationship with other people. How many times have you been caught saying something about somebody else and it got back to them and as a result, it ruined your relationship? Man, I can think about times in my life where that's happened. It's because our thoughts determine our kindness. Our words affect our witness. Maybe you guys have seen the commercials coming up for the new Space Jam. For those of you that are Michael Jordan fans, you can remember the first one. This is number two with maybe the greatest of all time, LeBron James. Sorry, I got to know my crowd. It's Space Jam number two with all the Looney Tunes. And maybe you can remember back to Taz. Remember that character? little dude who spun around, the Tasmanian devil. Remember him? I've learned something really interesting about Tasmanian devils. They're almost extinct. It's a real animal. They're almost extinct. They don't spin around like Taz. But that's, that's interesting to me because they're almost extinct because of a rare form of cancer that's formed specifically only among their breed that starts when another Tasmanian devil bites They're literally killing off their own species because they can't control their mouths. And I kind of think critical Christians are the exact same way. People are leaving God and leaving his church in flocks because they see other Christians bickering among each other. And our own critical tongue has poisoned us to the point where we're barely functioning at times. It destroys relationships with each other. But not only does it destroy relationship with each other, it also destroys our relationship with God. Did you see how angry God was towards criticism? The Bible says his anger was kindled against them, so he leaves them, but he doesn't just leave them, he also leaves one of them diseased. God hates it when we sin. And a critical attitude, a critical spirit, a critical tongue is sin. It affects our relationship with each other. It affects our relationship with God. Lastly, it affects us. It destroys us. Miriam becomes leprous before they even have time to turn around and look at her. Leprosy is a pretty interesting disease. It literally eats you away from the inside out. Your body parts, fingers, toes, hands, noses, ears literally fall off as this disease eats you from the inside out i want you to know that your criticism will do the same to you it will eat you alive inside and leave you spiritually diseased and deserted can i encourage you today rather than having a critical attitude using critical words among each other I believe that we should do something far more offensive. I believe we need a little bit more of that four-letter word called love. Here's what 1 Corinthians says in verse 13. It says, hey, if you speak with the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, 
You're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The writer says you can do everything that you can do to be an outstanding, incredible person, but if you do what you're doing without love, it's all for nothing. So let me encourage you today, church, love. Love the people who are unlovable. Love the people who've hurt you. Love the people who've been bad to you and good to you. Love the people who are like you. Love the people who are different than you. Just love other people with the love of Jesus. Otherwise, it's all for naught. You know, I've noticed there's a couple of personalities among Christians, and, and neither one of them are wrong. Some of us have an attitude that's just like, well, we're going to love everybody and accept everybody. And on the other side, you have Christians who are like, well, what happened to truth? Isn't sin still sin? Isn't God still just? And the other side is looking at that side saying, you need a little bit more love and a little bit more grace and a little bit more acceptance. Could it be that we're both right? That it's about love and truth? Look at verse 6. It does not, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. It accepts others in faults, but it understands that God's word is truth and that sin is sin and that love is love. You know, notice that it's not love versus truth or truth versus love. It's love and truth partnered together. I think this teaches us three things and then we're done. I hope this has been helpful to you like it has been to me. It teaches us, first of all, that we should act upon the majors. Act on them. If you have a friend who's legitimately doing something wrong, who has sin in their life, then it is your responsibility not to just talk about it, but act on it. Help them. Pray for them. Go to counseling with them. Keep them accountable. Act. Don't just dwell on it. Act on it. Act on the majors. Secondly, accept the minors so they're different than you they have different tastes different likes different preferences they like different music accept it they dress weird they wear white shoes with blue shoes blue white shoes with blue pants they don't know how to speak accept it they talk funny accept it they act different accept it whatever it is that you're dwelling on move on accept it Lastly, always love. No matter what we're doing, we need that four-letter word. We need love in all things. Love all people. Love all people despite their flaws, despite their mess-ups, and despite hatred and opposition. Just love. There was a reporter who once asked legendary coach Vince Lombardi what it took to have a winning team. And his response was amazing. He says there's a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and who have plenty of discipline but still don't win the game. So then you come to the third ingredient. See, if you're going to play together as a team, then you have to care for each other. You have to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the guy next to them, thinking in their minds, if I don't block, then my quarterback's going to break his leg. I have to do my part so he can do his. He said that's the difference between greatness and mediocrity. That's the difference. The love these guys have for each other. 
meant exactly what Jesus said. Maybe why that, maybe that's why that story is so powerful. Because Jesus said, hey, you're going to go into this world. There's going to be a lot of trouble and difficulty. But there's going to be one way that the world will know that you're my follower. By the way that you love one another. Maybe there's going to be times when our heart is hurt. Maybe there are going to be moments where we'd rather criticize that person than love them. But in those moments, remember your purpose is love. That's what makes us different, the way that we love each other. I mean, Jesus loved us, the unlovable. Maybe we should love each other that kind of love too. so much for joining us. If you have any prayer requests or questions about your spiritual life, we would love to pray for you. Or if you would just like more information about visiting us in person, please email us at chicago at ashburnbaptist.com or visit our website ashburnbaptist.com slash chicago.